my name is John, and uh, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Reality. If I haven't met you, I'm very grateful that you're here. Would love to say hi after uh, our gathering together. I'd love for you to stand with me as we read the passage that this teaching is based on. So if, you don't, if you're able, please stand. Galatians 3, verses 27 to 29. Paul writes, For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, we've been in a series in Galatians for eight weeks now, the first part of it, and uh, we have one more week left after this week, so we'll be here again next week, and then after that, we are going to transition, hopefully, back to the chapel, uh, which is on 808 East 19th. It's the building that we uh, rent and normally meet in, and so in two weeks, we'll, we'll be back there, and we'll be starting a series on rule of life, uh, which is talking about different practices that help to shape us to become the people of God, and one of those practices is actually spiritual friendship that we have in our rule of life. So it's a good time to be talking about that. Um, uh, so next week, we're going to come back here, and, and we're going to do a Q&A, a short, like in the sermon time, we'll do a Q&A, a short Q&A about questions about being centered on Jesus, and then we'll do actually a learning activity to help kind of drill these, this idea of being centered on Jesus into, into us in a different type of way. But this week, we're looking at this passage, which is one of the most famous, actually, in the New Testament. Many of you may have heard it before, and it's central to the arguments of Galatians. It's, it stands right in the middle of the book of Galatians, which means that it's kind of signaling to us that it's right at the heart of what it is. And in this passage, Paul is talking about a practice, a practice called baptism, and it, it was and it is a very important initiatory practice in the family of God. It signals that you're in the family of God. And specifically, he talks about this practice in a way that is a, a way that's centered on Jesus. So we're going to look at this passage in three parts. There can be uh, three ways that we make this practice actually a boundary, that we use it to keep people out or to count ourselves in. And we're going to counter that with three ways that Paul invites us to see baptism as a centered practice. So the first way that, that we can make uh, baptism into a boundary, into something that we, we make an us and them with, that shows that we're in and other people are out, is by using our beliefs about baptism as a way of distinguishing between ourselves and other people. Using our beliefs about baptism as a way that we distinguish between ourselves and other Christians. Listen to what Peter Lightheart says in his great book, Baptism. He says, talk about baptism and you're immediately plunged into arguments. Whom should we baptize? Professing converts or infants? How should we baptize? By immersion, pouring, or sprinkling? Why do we baptize? As a sign of God's claim or as a convert's public confession of faith? What does baptism do? Nothing? Something? Everything? And if it does something, how long does it last? For a moment or forever? Now, you may not have been aware of all these different permutations. I haven't done permutations since I was in grade 11, so I didn't try to calculate how many options there are here of what you could believe about baptism, but I bet you there's at least over 100 different permutations here. So you, you may or may not be aware of this, but Christians have lots of different opinions about lots of different issues, and one of them is baptism. Now, why? You might be asking, why do we have so many different opinions about these things? Well, for me, there's two important reasons why. And they're both actually historical reasons of why Christians have divided so many times about over issues like baptism. The first is because of uh, the, a, a moment in history called the Reformation. 
or the Reformation. So this was something that happened about 500 years ago, and it was a moment in church history where a bunch of church leaders called the church, the Catholic church at the time, to get back to the story of God. They basically said, look, we have wandered off, and we've just become this institution, uh, and uh, we're off of the story of God. We're, we're not listening to that story at all. And you may have heard of, of the statement sola scriptura. It's one of the five solas, meaning that by scripture alone, which is kind of an odd saying, if there's five of them, then they all stand alone, but they're not really standing alone because there's five of them. Um, but the idea here is that we get back to scripture. By scripture alone that we're going to go back and read the scripture for ourselves. And this was a really important uh, and uh, important thing for to happen in the church. It's a really good thing. And our church comes out of this Reformation history. However, one of the downsides of this invitation for everybody to read the scripture and interpret it for themselves is what turns out when you do that, people are going to interpret it differently. And we're all going to have, or we're going to have many different interpretations out of Scripture. And especially if you're unaware of how your story and how your moment in history and how your perspective and, and how your language and everything about you is going to give you a certain lens on Scripture, if you're unaware of those things, then you're just going to approach Scripture and you're going to be like, well, I read it this way. It's obvious to me. It should be obvious to everybody else that they should read it in the same way that I do. And therefore... If you have half a brain, you'd probably just read scripture like I would. You'd get, come to the same conclusions if you were just looking at it clear-eyed like I am. And uh, so what happens, or one way we can look at it is like this, this picture, if we could put it up. So imagine that this, in the circle here, are all the different Christians in the world. Um, so what, what happens is when we come from this perspective where we're all reading scripture for ourselves and we're unaware of how our stories play in, we go to just one slice of the pie if you want to go to the next one. And we say, actually, instead of everybody's story mattering, this, or everybody being a true Christian, it's just mine, my perspective, this little slice of the pie. My perspective is the real way of reading scriptures, and yours is not. And Scott McKnight, one of my favorite theologians, he says this perspective on reading scripture goes like this. First, you start at a church, and you like it. You go through this honeymoon period. You agree with everything. But then after you get a little farther in, you realize you don't. You have different beliefs about something. Maybe it's baptism. So you leave that church. You go to another church that agrees with you on baptism, and you have a honeymoon period. And then you find out they disagree with you on something. So you go to a smaller church. Same thing happens. So you start a house church with a few friends. They don't all agree with you. And then finally you're doing church by yourself. And that's how this path goes, is again and again we, we, we split and we divide over different things that we disagree with because of the way that we read Scripture. And we assume that the way that we read it is just the perfect way. It's an it's a, um, unintended consequence of Reformation reading. And I've been reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians as I've been preaching and preparing through this series. He was one of the Reformer leaders, and it's an excellent commentary. But one of the things that's been interesting as I've been reading through is I think he would say the same thing. He would be absolutely appalled at how the church has split again and again and again and again. And in 500 years, we've gone from one denomination to 10,000 and focusing on all the differences that we have instead of the unity that we have together. So that's one of the first reasons why um, Christians have so many different opinions and it continues to kind of split the church. The second historical reason why these theological squabbles take up so much airtime in the church is because we're coming out of what was called a Christendom society. A Christendom society. So one way of thinking about Christendom is that it's a society where 
to Christianity is a privileged religion. It's at a privileged place. So people look up to people who are Christians. Most of the people in the society are Christians. And if you're not a Christian, you feel pressured to be a Christian. So our society in Canada was like that in the past. So in that kind of a society where almost everybody is a Christian, how do you show that you're a real Christian? Well, one of the ways of doing that is by distinguishing your beliefs from everybody else and saying we're people who are real Christians. So that makes us closer to the center. So instead of maybe the pie picture, it's like this. We, we make the, the perspective a lot smaller, and we say our church, our people, actually hold the truest perspective. We're real Christians. So in a church, in baptism, for example, we could say something like this, that we're a church <clears throat> that baptizes adults at immersion by conversion. That's who we are. Unlike those people next door. They're out there baptizing. They're sprinkling babies. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's completely unbiblical. And so what we do is we signal. It's in business language. It's called a differentiation strategy. I'm telling you how we're different from them and that we're better. We're the true Christians. So we're a real church. So that means if you're a real Christian, you should come and join our real church. And it's a strategy that we can use. Um, But the problem is... Well, yeah, the problem is that we don't live in that kind of a society anymore. We don't live in a Christendom society anymore. As uh, one of my intellectual heroes, Tim Keller, says, we, at best we live in what's called spotty Christendom, which means that there's little parts of, the, of North America that still adhere to Christendom, where it's a privileged thing. I think he had just visited Abbotsford when he wrote those words. Um, but the debates, the problem is if we don't live in that kind of society anymore, then the debates that we have, these intramural debates, they don't matter to anyone. They, they only matter in areas of spotty Christendom. Or they matter to seminary students. Or to Christian nerds. And no shade on those folks. Like, I'm probably a Christian nerd. I love these kinds of things. I love learning about them. But let me tell you who doesn't care about these kinds of things. My friends. Our neighbors. Your coworkers. My kids. And what they see when we're battling over these intramural tiny debates is they see a bunch of Christians who are concerned with something they don't care about, doesn't seem to matter, and at the same time, hypocrisy and scandal and a lack of Christ-like character characterize our church. That's what they see. So what does Paul say about baptism that encourages us to be centered instead of bounded, instead of trying to draw these boundaries from one another? So Paul writes these words. He says, for those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. And he's trying to say the key thing that we bring is not the differences. For those of you, we all come, but we're baptized into Christ. That's what we share in common is Christ. It's in him, and that we're clothed with Christ. And this, this term, clothed with Christ, has just been running in tumble dry on my head all week this week as I prepared this sermon. And I think it's, it reminded me of this story from, my, uh, from this past year that I think might help bring this home. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm a huge uh, Edmonton Oilers fan. Uh, so they're an NHL hockey team. They're the NHL hockey team, really, is the best way to put it for you. And uh, so they went on this, uh, this huge run in the playoffs this year, which is very unlike them. So they're one of the top four teams, which is a great feeling. So if you're like a a Leafs fan or a Canucks fan and you don't understand what that feels like, I'd be happy to describe it for you later, what that joy feels like of of getting that far in the playoffs. But as they went farther and farther, 
I became more and more passionate. Our family would like schedule our entire schedule around the games and watching the games and being together. Um, it was quite the, quite the whole ordeal. And you would see more and more people on the street just wearing Oilers stuff that kind of came out of the woodwork. Even though we Oilers fans are in exile here in Vancouver, you would see people across the street wearing different Oilers paraphernalia. So I normally am a very, uh, I'm a pretty introverted person, so I would never just greet a stranger on the street. I'm just kind of like heads down, headphones in type of person. My wife is the opposite, where she's like, oh, that's a cute dog, and then three minutes later they're best friends, that kind of thing. Um, I'm the opposite of that. But during this run, if I would see someone and we're passing on the sidewalk and they're wearing like an Oilers jersey on game day, I would put my fist out to them and I'd be like, here we go. Here we go, baby. Big game tonight. And they'd, we'd stop and we'd talk. Sometimes for five, ten minutes, I'd be late to things because I'm stopping and chatting with this stranger who's wearing this jersey. And one time, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to admit it, but this is a safe place, so I'll just say what happened. People are walking down the other side of the street and they're chanting, let's go Oilers. And I joined them from the other side of the street, just absolutely not my, my normal personality at all. So here, here's what I'm trying to say. What did, what did I share with those people? Well, I didn't ask them like, what their political views are. And I bet you if they're from Edmonton, their political views might be slightly different than mine. I didn't ask them about their faith commitments. I didn't ask them, hey, do you like, also love Jesus? You know? I didn't ask them uh, anything about themselves. I didn't even know if they spoke English. They might have found their jersey in a garbage can for what all I understood, and they just wore it out for the first time ever. But the most important thing for me and for all of them in that moment was not our differences. It was that they were clothed in Euler's paraphernalia, and I was too. And in that moment, I, came, I became like the Backstreet Boys strong, song. I didn't care who they were, where they were from, <laughs> what they'd done, as long as they loved the Edmonton Oilers. That's the most important thing, is our common commitment to Connor McDavid taking over the league. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying exactly the same thing. We can focus on all of our differences. That's one way of being the church. It's one way of being any group of, of people. We all come from different places, from different perspectives, with different experiences. I'm so grateful, again, that Kim shared hers, with different theological perspectives. But Paul is saying, when you say yes to Jesus, you're putting yourself into Christ. You are clothed with him. That's the jersey you're putting on. And he becomes our unity, our life. Everything else, Paul says, is relativized. All these other important things that we bring, when we, we are baptized into Christ, he becomes our clothing. He becomes the thing that we wear. And baptism is one of those common practices where we say, despite the differences that I have, when I am baptized, I am aligning myself with everybody else in this church who's been baptized. Everybody else in this city, from any other church, anybody else in this world, and, and all the saints throughout all the time, who, all time who have gone through the same practice where I'm saying the most important thing about me is that I'm in Christ, that I'm clothed in him. Here's the rest of Peter Lightheart's uh, quote that I, that I said earlier. He says, this is why quarrels over baptism are such a travesty. The church has one baptism as it is one body with one spirit, one Lord, one hope, one faith, and one Father. And yet God's sign of unity is a spring of division. We're Corinthians acting as if we were baptized into the name of Thomas or Calvin or Luther or John Piper or add whoever it is that you want there. And Paul's outrage echoes down through the centuries. Is Christ divided? Is he divided? See, our biggest need in this community is not to distinguish ourselves 
from one another. We're welcome to bring our stories, and those, are, of course, are going to be different. But it's, the biggest need is not to distinguish ourselves from each other or from other churches in the city, but to be partnered together, to be one in Christ in baptism, so that we can partner with the Spirit in becoming like Jesus and looking to this mission field, this growing mission field that we have outside of us. So let's not put theology to the side, but let's not let these minute differences get in the way of the message that, about the Jesus that we share. So Paul says, baptism is about unity, unity amidst diversity, not fracturing and splintering. But the second way we can treat baptism as a bounded set community, that we make it a boundary to show who's in and out, is by treating baptism like a finish line. Treating baptism like a finish line. It's saying like this, I did something in the past, and therefore I know that I'm in. Now, this is probably no better conveyed anywhere than in the 2000s cult classic film, Nacho Libre. Now, if you don't know this film, first of all, what are you doing with your life? I, I don't really know what's going on with you. But if you haven't, let me just give you a quick introduction. It's a, it's a great movie. And the scene, we're going to watch a quick scene here. And there's two wrestlers. They're on a wrestling team together. And one of them is a Christian and is very concerned about the other wrestler. Okay? So watch and listen. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... <laughs> so, comic genius. The whole movie is fantastic. But the point is, you can see this logic at work. Even though it's just comedy, you can see this logic at work here. Which goes something like this. If you've been baptized, then you're saved, and I'm not going to hell. Kind of this kind of logic that goes through. And it's really funny in Nacho Libre, but I, I think that it's not actually that different to how we look at baptism and even faith in general. If I ask people, you know, are you a Christian? One of the common answers I'll get is like, yeah, I was baptized when I was 13. Or I made a profession of faith when I was 25. Or something along those lines. And the focus becomes on that moment that, that we look at those things as finish lines. That's how I know that I'm a follower of Jesus. And it's a bounded set way of thinking, that I'm creating a boundary and I'm just inside. Listen to what Mark Baker says in his great commentary on Galatians. He says this, Baptism can be used in a bounded way, but in essence, it's a centered act. The key factor in a centered group is the direction that you're going. Are you moving towards the center? Are you moving towards Jesus or away from him? Baptism symbolizes a change in direction that a person has turned and started a new life. See, baptism is much less like a finish line and more like a starting gun. That's the picture that Scripture uses to talk about it. So when you, when you are baptized, when you change direction and you put yourself towards Jesus, you agree with him about who you are and who he is, and you start walking towards him, many things become true about us. 
that we're accepted, that we're freed, that we're loved, that we're saved. Scripture gives a whole list of things that become true about us. But God, as we saw last week and the week before, he also puts his spirit inside of us. And his spirit is the one that's inviting us to become like Jesus. That's asking us to ask this question all the time that we heard from Romans 8. What's next, Papa? What do you have next for me? How are you drawing me to become more like the person of Jesus? I love what one ancient commentator said about this movement that baptism starts and this passage that Paul has just uh, talked about. He says, a bodily garment is fitted for one who wears it, whereas a spiritual garment shapes its wearer. A bodily garment is fitted for one who wears it, whereas a spiritual garment shapes its wearer. See, a bodily garment is something that we're putting on for our own comfort, and it adheres to us. It shapes itself to us, whereas what he's saying is that Christ actually shapes us, that the longer that we wear him, if we're clothed in him, we become like him. So baptism is not about trying to fit God into our lives. It's not about crossing a line and then seeing how Jesus might fit into our lives, into our busy lives into our theological frameworks or systems, you know, into the different things that we have already going on. Rather, baptism is the first of a pattern of dying and rising. That's what you're saying. I'm saying I'm committed to this experience of, in our, in our, uh, in our theological way of looking at it, we go under the water. I'm committed to this dying and rising pattern for the rest of my life. And so my whole life will be characterized that, by that, that I'm continually changing to become more like the person of Jesus. And so how I look at things will change. How I parent will change. How I love will change. How I do my job will change as I become more and more like Jesus, as I'm more and more shaped towards him. So we don't want to be a bounded set church. We don't want to just look at it like this, like we're crossing a boundary and then people are in. But we also don't want to be what's called a fuzzy set church, where we take all of the, uh, we take Jesus out from the center and you do you. Baptism is neither of those things. It's drawing us. It's a picture of the first step of drawing us towards the person of Jesus that we continually throughout our lives become more and more like. So baptism is about unity amidst diversity not fracturing or splintering. And baptism, Paul says, is also about growth and direction, not just crossing a finish line. It's like a starting gun, not simply a finish line. And then finally, Paul says, baptism is a practice that asks us for a shift in identity, a shift in identity. Now, most scholars say the next two verses are what's called a baptismal formula. So Paul talks about baptism, and then he gives two verses, which probably would be spoken over someone, while they're being baptized. So let me read those for us again. He says, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, male and female, since you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. There's two amazing statements here. Let me summarize what I think Paul is saying. First, he gives us a list, a couple lists of, of the ways that people are different. So he talks about ethnic differences. Then he talks about power or socioeconomic differences. And then finally, he talks about gender differences. And what he says is that societies come along and they take these natural differences between us and they value one thing above the other. So in Galatia, if you've been with us in this series, you'll know that there's been Jewish people who have been coming and they're saying Jewish uh, culture and religion is better than any other kind. So they're placing a value judgment on that on, on ethnic differences. In the Roman world, the power differences were very important. So they had a big social ladder that was very, very clear. And so the people who were free, 
who had social, who had economic, who had symbolic capital, those were valued much, much higher than those who didn't have any of those things and were slaves. It was a huge value divide between those people. And, and from what I've read, anywhere in the ancient Near East, gender difference was a huge deal. I did a bunch of reading on it this week, and one of my, the most interesting was in the Greek world. So if you know anything about uh, Greek philosophy, they have this idea from Plato about the forms. This is like the, the perfect vision of what it means to be like a horse. There's the form of a horse. And so they said, in Greek uh, philosophy, they said, well, men are closer to that vision of what it means to be a true human. They're more like that. And women are more like animals. That's what they're like. They're, they're more animalistic. And one of the ways, I just thought this was kind of funny. One of the ways that they, they said this is a proof of it is when men get together, they talk about philosophy. But when women get together, they talk about sex. And I was like, oh, things have slightly changed, I think, in our, our world since that time. But that was one of the rationales that they had. And all of the ancient Near East societies were like this. Men were better than women. And so what we do is we take these natural judgments and we place value on one over the other. And Paul says when you're baptized, the most important thing about you becomes that you're in Christ. And your identity and your values change. It's not that you change from becoming those things. It's not like we all become one like beige blob of you know, ethnicity. We just choose somewhere between like white and black, and then we're just kind of somewhere in the middle. Or as someone in our church said about me, we look vaguely Asian, everybody. Um, that's not the goal, or that you, you lose your status as a male or female, or your socioeconomic status. It's that those things become relativized, because the most important thing has become about you and about each of us that Christ. We're in Christ. That's who we are. And as if that's not enough, he follows up by saying this in the second sentence. He's saying, if you belong to Jesus, then you're part of this ancient, ancient promise that God made to Abraham. That he said to him, I will be with you. I'll be in your midst. I'm your God. And I will bless you, and you will bless all nations. And, and Paul says, if we're in Christ, even though none of us probably come from that heritage, from Abraham's heritage, we're included in that great story and that great promise. And we get to walk in that, to be a, a blessing to the world as we're blessed by God. But here's the problem. That's a really e these things are really easy things to say. Jesus is my identity. Jesus is my inheritance. We can even get tattoos of those things if we want. But they're very, very hard for us to experience and live in day to day. It's so much easier to move Christ out of the center of our lives and make sure that he's more like a fire insurance than my inheritance, and to make something else my identity, to put value judgments on different things in my life, to say that I am, you know, this, this group of people is valued, and that group of people is not. And we go back to creating boundaries once again, the boundaries that Christ has given his life to break down. And there's so many ways that we can do this. Unfortunately, in the church, these categories that Paul has written about 2,000 years ago still exist of race and gender and socioeconomic status. Now, the, the issue I realized, though, in preaching on this is that I, I think if I asked anyone in our community, are these the boundaries that you have, you would probably say no. Like, nobody in our community would be like, let's just make sure we keep the poor people out of here. Like, if you said that, that would be very frowned upon in Vancouver. Or if you're like, everyone's welcome except for that ethnicity. Those folks can go somewhere else. Nobody in Vancouver is going to say that. So they don't exist at the personal level. They exist more at the systemic level. This is where they exist. And that's a whole different sermon. 
So I'm not going to preach that one today. Although I will mention one thing quickly, which Sarah told me might derail this entire sermon, but I'm still going to say it. It's long been reality's theology that we are having, we can have women preach in our community, but we've never done it. It's been one of those things systemically that we've never actually done. But this summer, we're going to have a few women come and preach in our community, which I hope is a step for us in addressing these systemic issues that Paul is talking about here. So for some of you, you may be jumping with joy. You're doing it in the reality way, which is just staring directly at me with a straight face. For others of you, you might be raging mad. I have no clue where you're at. But I just wanted to mention it because it is a change in something that we're doing. And and if you want to chat more about that, I'm very happy to. Um, Whatever place you find yourself on the spectrum. But it is one of those things we're doing to address this passage and, and a systemic issue that's existed in the church. But like I said, for most of us, these systemic issues don't touch us personally like they would somebody in the ancient Near East. Like we don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and pray a prayer that they would have prayed 2,000 years ago, which is, God, thank you so much that I'm not a Greek, that I'm not a slave, that I'm not a woman. There are multiple examples of that prayer that exist from that time. But those aren't our prayers. You know, for most of us, we have other things that we do that we look in the mirror and say, this is my identity This is my value. The things that function at the core, the level of core values or our day-to-day motivations. And recently we talked about the Enneagram, and it's one of the oldest personality tests in the world. And I know that some people in this community are are very familiar with it. So I thought I would use it because it it identifies core, nine core values or motivations, things that motivate us in how we actually daily move in the world. And if you love the Enneagram, fantastic. And you know your number, and you're sure you know everyone else's number, good for you, fantastic. If you hate the Enneagram, that's great too. Just look at the right side of this. And just listen to what the core motivations are. So for, for an Enneagram one, that's one type of person, being good and right enough is how we're motivated in the world. So the way that I walk through my day to day The way that I know that I'm okay is if I'm good enough. The people around me notice me as good and right. And sometimes what we can do is we value, devalue others who don't care about that or who don't seem good or at all concerned with being good or right. And in the moments that we go around in the world or we're surrounded by people who make us feel like we're wrong or bad, we feel terrible about ourselves. And that's how this works. So some of us, that's not how we walk around the world. Some of us is being wanted and loved. My, my, my motivation is to be wanted and loved enough or to be valued and admired or to be authentic enough or to be competent enough or secure enough or satisfied enough or independent enough or at, an, an, at peace. These are the things often that mobilize us in the world. They're our true identity. And when we feel valued or independent or competent or whatever your thing is, you feel up. You feel good. You feel in. And when you don't, you feel like you're down in the dumps. And like I said, it relativizes or it changes how we look at each other too. For those who don't exhibit our core value, we revere, or those who do, we revere them. And those who don't, we devalue them. But whether you're up or down, it's a problem for the gospel. Because Christ is not taking that center part of our lives. He's not our identity. We're not found in him. He's not our inheritance. And let me tell you, it's really, really hard to be living that story, to be blessed, to be a blessing if we're running after these core things. Let me just give you one example because this is a bit maybe ethereal. So I'm probably an Enneagram 5, which is uh, one of the 
key drivers for me, the key motivations of my life is to be competent, to be seen as competent and capable. So this week, I don't know what it was about this specific passage. I did lots of research, and it was super interesting. I got super into it. But I just, I probably rewrote this sermon maybe more than I rewrote any other sermon that I've ever preached. Just again and again, I was kind of circling around it. But the thing that happened over the week as, as it went on and got closer to Sunday, and I was still rewriting from scratch this sermon, is I started to feel a little bit frightened. I don't know if anxiety is exactly the word I would use. But I felt anxious. And the, the, the problem was I was afraid, I realized as I got closer to Sunday, that if I showed up here without something good, you all would think I wasn't competent. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, you think we think you're competent? I don't know, I don't know what planet you're living on. But the, the, the part of it is that my whole, my being started to shift into that mode. Fear started to take root in my, in my mind, in my heart. And I wasn't the problem about that is that I wasn't putting Christ in the middle. Christ did not become the center of my preparation for this time together. What I put was your opinion there in the middle and my fear and my identity. And I was not able to live in a space of being blessed, that Christ is my identity, that Christ is my inheritance in order to be a blessing. And what becomes center is your opinion, is these words on this page, is my personal identity. That moves to the center, and that mobilizes me in, in completely the wrong way to come and deliver a message. And I don't know if you resonate with that at all. If you're an Enneagram 5, maybe you do. But whatever it is, that's, that's what this is talking about. That's what Paul is saying, that we all have moments where we're afraid that our core competency or our core value is not going to be met. And what we do is we move our identity into the middle, me into the middle. My fear and your opinion of me gets moved into the middle. So how does baptism help us in this way? Well, baptism is, is a practice with two motions, with two motions. First, there's the downward motion. And again, in our uh, tr theological tradition, people go under the water. And this is an acknowledgement that I'm not enough, an acknowledgement that I will never be competent enough for you or for God, that no matter what I do, there's no way for me to be enough. I can't live up to my own expectations and I'll keep going into these cycles of feeling good about myself if I feel competent, but then guess what? There's next Sunday for me. And whatever your thing is for you, there's next Sunday, this moment where your competency will be judged again. And if you keep trying to be enough in those, you'll just get exhausted. It's just an endless escalator of trying to climb up. I'm, I'm not enough in that way, and I'm not enough to break out from the power, Paul says, of sin by myself, this dark power that's over us in our world. And I'm not enough to gain the blessing that I need in my life, to be in the presence of God, that I would hear his words over me, you're blessed to be a blessing, that my light can shine through you. So it's this admittance that something in me is not enough. But Paul says that we look at the grace of Jesus. And here specifically, and in all of Galatians, he's talking about a specific kind of grace, which theolo the theological term is it's incongruous. It's incongruous with us. In antiquity, uh, gifts were given very, very carefully. You would never, ever give a gift to someone who is unworthy of the gift because that would just be foolish. It'd be like if you had Tesla and you gave it to my nine-year-old and you're like, I don't know, take it for a rip. Here's a good gift for you. That's just unwise gift giving. And so gifts were always given to people who are worthy. But Paul says Jesus actually comes and gives gifts especially to those who are unworthy. 
It's completely incongruous with the status that we have. And Paul says this about himself. He says, Jesus came and appeared to me while I was persecuting the church. I was completely unworthy of the gift of Jesus. And the Gospels say this about the disciples. The disciples all turn their back on Jesus. Yet when he rises, he makes a beeline to these guys. And he says, I, I want to give you my ministry, my life, my spirit. It's going to work through you, even though you're completely not worthy of it. Paul says the same thing in Galatians. He, says, he calls them Gentile sinners, people who should be outside of the promise of God, outside of this inheritance story because they're not in the right ethnicity. And Paul says it's these people specifically that Christ comes to, the people who are unworthy that received the Christ gift. And Paul says this is true about everybody, that all of us are unworthy of the gift. All of us are outsiders in some way. And so this, the, the going down in baptism symbolizes that. I'm agreeing with God's judgment that I'm not enough in some way. But we don't stay down. We don't stay dead. Instead, we rise up with Jesus, with the life of Christ in us. We come up out of the water and we say, I belong to Jesus. He is my identity. He is my inheritance. And we can join with him in this story of being blessed to be a blessing to the world rather than a curse. And you know, Paul uses this phrase in Christ about 170 times in his letter. Letters, sorry. Again and again and again. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to find yourself in Christ. And I think he's signaling to us that, again, this baptism is just the first moment where we put our identity in him but we have to do it again and again and again and again. Because like, like for me, next Sunday will come. And I don't know what it is for you, but that moment where you feel like maybe I'm not enough will come. And that's the moment when we continue on this path that Paul says of dying and rising. Being honest, I'm not enough, but I find the gift of Christ that raises me up out of the water and puts me back into this story that he is my identity he is my inheritance, and in him I am more than enough, and I can be a blessing to the rest of the world. Paul says it this way in chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but the life of Christ is made known through mine. Let's pray to close. God, we thank you for this passage, and I know uh, many of us in this room have probably been baptized. We've, we've gone through this experience. I pray uh, it's just such a beautiful picture, and there's so much more that we could talk about in baptism. But I pray that we wouldn't use it in any of these ways as a distinction between us and other people who have been baptized in different ways, or um, as a way to uh, finish, as a finish line for ourselves, or just a one-time thing, and instead that we would do what you, you call us to do, that it would be something that unites us with you and with each other. May, may you clothe us with the life of Christ. May you shape us. May we be people who are continually walking towards you. And may we take on this identity that you've given us in Jesus. And may we live out this story that you call us to. That we, we come into your presence. That you are with us, even here today. That you are with us in our midst. And that you want to bless us in order that we would be a blessing to each other, to this city, and to this world. So Christ, please be our life. Put yourself in the, in the midst of us now. And as we respond in prayer, in giving, in singing, in communion, I ask that you would be our life, and that you would teach us and you would show us by your spirit where you're calling us to die and rise with you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.